<clears throat> Good morning. It certainly is beautiful out there this morning. And uh, this is going to be a different kind of a message this morning. I've been practicing preaching now for, I don't know, <laughs> been, been a while. And uh, usually I try to follow an outline. Uh, this is not an outline today. It's not an outline message at all. Um, these are the thoughts that I've had um, concerning the resurrection. And it's been, it's been hard thinking about trying to put some of these together, but only at the end of, of looking at the stuff that I've been researching and, and looking at, does it seem to be like a collage of a big bigger picture, little parts of it. Uh, it may seem random, but I, I pray that God will use what I've been studying this week and last week uh, to explain a little more. It's small little vignettes of the story of the resurrection, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in his life. Um, and maybe we can... We can get something from that. I know George has just prayed, but I'm going to pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the beauty, as George has mentioned. I pray, Lord, this morning that you will bless your word to our hearts and only the truth, Lord. Where there is speculation, where there is error, please, Lord, I pray that you would take that away. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives us hope this morning to meet. And I pray, Lord, that you'll work in our hearts. May I ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, it is. Can you not hear me? Uh, Rachel's got it. Rachel, turn the two sliders in the far right up quite a bit. Did you get them? Is it better? I'll speak louder. Okay, first, one of the most poignant foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ comes rather early in the Old Testament. In Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, it reads, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now here is a clear picture of the problem of sin. In both verse 5 and verse 7, it says that the Israelites sinned against God first and foremost. In response, God sends fiery serpents amongst the people that bite many of them and they die and there is no cure. As a partial aside note, I find the description of these serpents rather remarkable. The word fiery in verse 6 is used to describe the seraphim and their appearance. It can also mean the word poisonous or simply copper-colored. Whatever was actually meant here, it appears that these serpents were not an ordinary occurrence and as such were special judgment, not unlike the kind of judgments passed upon Egypt not too long in Israel's past. 
Nonetheless, the people cry out to Moses to intercede on their behalf before God. And God relents. The remedy, an effigy of the plague, stuck high on a pole, so that if they were bit, all they had to do was look at the serpent on the pole, and they would live. What do you think it was that God was looking to see from this rebellious people? It was faith. You see, in order to bring yourself to look at the serpent on the pole, once you'd been bit, you had to believe that by looking to the pole, that God would reward your faith by honoring his promise to heal you. The action of looking at the pole was secondary to the primary action of believing God's word to be true. I'm sure you can still hear the skeptics. We can find no cure for venom of these fiery serpents, and you're telling me all I have to do is just look at some stupid statue on a pole, and I'll live. You know, I wonder how many skeptics died that day. Until the first person in faith and belief looked to that pole and proved God's word to be true. Once that happened, I'm sure the skeptics were silenced. Israel's sin was a complete lack of faith in God. His correction addressed this point beautifully and effectively. You want to live? Have faith in God. And in much the same way, the example of the fiery serpent on the pole foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice. We, the people of today, are just as faithless at times as Israel. We don't believe God, and God cursed us because of our lack of faith. This was the initial sin of Adam and Eve. We've been practicing not believing God for almost all of our existence. What's God's remedy? John 3, verses 14 through 17. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The people of Israel who looked to the serpent on the pole and lived eventually died. There was no special power that prolonged their lives beyond that moment. In fact, they would disbelieve God again, and many would die in God's judgment. But Christ's sacrifice was no shadow. This gift of eternal life is given to those who look to this remedy. Faith in the pole of Moses brought a remedy for those, uh, the poison and, uh, sorry, faith in the pole of Moses brought a remedy for, for the poison and temporary life to those guilty of faithlessness. But faith in Jesus Christ brings those who are dead to life, even life eternal. Which is greater, <clears throat> administering an antidote for poison or making something that is dead come alive? God calls all people to look to his son lifted high on the cross as the only means of salvation, to exercise faith in him and believe God when he tells you that you are a sinner before him <clears throat> and that he is angry with you and your rebellious nature, and that without the blood of Jesus Christ covering your wickedness, you will forever be separated from him, the author of life, in the very pit of hell, where the fire does not consume and the worm does not die. There is no antidote for this poison coursing through your veins. 
There is no other remedy. Jesus has stated, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And no one means you too. The remedy is simple. Look to Christ. John 6, verses 37 through 40 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone can mean you too, if you put your faith in Christ's sacrifice for your sins. Secondly, it should be a ridiculous concept to consider that Christ could ever be subjugated to the power of death. As with all things, death is subject to God. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. John 10, verses 17 and 18. You know, some people define the word victim as a person who is powerless to control events that lead up to their harm. Subsequently, when this is applied to Jesus Christ, we end up with a misconception of who Christ was and is. In no way was Christ ever this kind of victim. He was always in control. If the John 10 passage was not clear about the person who commanded the power for him to die and be raised again, remember also that Jesus had at his disposal some other impressive firepower. Matthew 26, verse 53 reads, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? This sounds like a person in command and in control. During his Roman trial, he sets Pilate straight about who actually has authority over whom. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. John 19, verses 9 through 12. If Jesus is in control, then it is not hard to observe the author of life take up his life, as he said he would. It is imperative that God's people see this massive power and control of Jesus during the events leading to his crucifixion and his ultimate resurrection. In addition, powerless victims of crimes usually do not have any knowledge that trouble is coming because if they did know danger was approaching, they would probably try to avoid it. However, this is not the case with Jesus. 
He knew when Judas was coming to betray him. And he had foretold his death many times to his disciples, including the place and the time it was going to happen. We do not see Christ aware of these events and therefore trying to avoid them. What we see is Christ fully aware of what is happening and actively going to the very places that would lead up to his ultimate death on a Roman cross. It was almost as if he was doing these things on purpose, trying to be arrested, trying to be tortured, and trying to be executed. Brethren, our picture of our wonderful Savior must include his undeterring path to the cross, the plan of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to reconcile faithless, rebellious, wicked sinners to God is going to come to fruition exactly when and how God has determined it to be. Nothing thwarts Christ, sidetracks him, delays him, or causes him to reconsider if the prize is worth the price. From the first day of his ministry, his eyes are fixed on the shameful cross, and he will get there exactly on time. I have often wondered at some of the agony that his omniscience and omnipotence must have caused him during his sacrificial death on the cross. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, verse 10, in speaking of Christ, that for whom and through whom all things exist. Was Jesus intimately involved in the creation and growth of the bushes that would produce the thorns for his crown or of the tree that would eventually become his cross? At the dawn of creation, did he speak into existence the iron from which would come the nails for his feet and hands? Did he design our bodies knowing that crucifixion would be a torturous death? Did he know, as he formed man from the dust of his perfect earth, that several of Adam's sons would mock him, beat him, scourge him, and nail him to a tree? Yes, he did. The plan of God will come to pass, exactly as it was designed. Nothing deters, nothing impedes, ever forward to the cross. Third, notice that the resurrection of Christ was a private event. Have you ever stopped to think about that? He could have risen from the grave during the day and in front of many witnesses. He could have risen gloriously in full view of his disciples, or at least his inner three. If he had chosen to do so, there would have at least been some witnesses to the actual event. Instead, we are presented with witnesses that observed the risen Christ and the opened and empty tomb. We have absolutely no idea what actually transpired in the tomb of Christ on Easter morning. We aren't told anything in Scripture. We assume he merely came to life, and maybe that's exactly what happened, but we do not know. God, in his wisdom, has decided that this will be a matter of faith. Some were present at his birth. Many were present at his death, yet none at his resurrection. You would think that maybe that would have been the event that would have had all of mankind believing in Jesus Christ. His death was well documented, and not just by his disciples. 
Therefore, his birth is readily assumed, but his resurrection has always been met with skepticism. Just think, if Jesus had arisen with a great audience, there would be all kinds of documentation and eyewitness testimony. Don't we also think the same thing about his birth to some extent? Such meager beginnings for such a great king. Two poor teenagers as parents and born in a stable of all places. You know, we learn much about God and his methods by observing how he accomplishes his will. And we must remember that God has said, My ways are not your ways. Whatever we may think of the private nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we must understand that it was on purpose and designed by God. It could be that the process of resurrection is a joy that we're only to experience firsthand and not by observation. Even the temporary resurrection of Lazarus took place in the privacy of his tomb. He walked out at Jesus' command after life had been given and restored to him. The only person we have that has experienced the true resurrection is Jesus Christ. And the Bible allows us to observe the risen Christ for quite some time before he ascends. Let me tell you, the resurrections of the Bible all pale drastically to this resurrection. Not much changed for Lazarus when he was resurrected. He still lived in a sinful world, and he still died again, no less. But we, brethren, will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55. Fourth, consider also how the entire life of Christ brings us to praise God. The appearance of our Savior at his birth allows praise to God for the hope of potential salvation. The death of our Savior allows praise for the sacrifice of our, for our sins and subsequently peace with God. But the risen Christ allows praise for the completion of Christ's work, his victory over death and hell, and a new hope for the future as we have just talked about. We will be glorified like him. The risen Christ is his final form, so to speak. Not a baby, not a man but a glorious conqueror. This is also how he comes again. You know, salvation depends on the completed work of Christ, not just a part. There can be no resurrection if there is no death. There can be no death if there is no life. Many people stop with the birth of Christ and the hope it gives. We know that Christmas is celebrated much more than Easter. We celebrate Christmas and Easter because they are the beginning, middle, and end of his ministry. If there is no birth, there is no chance of redemption. If there is no death, there is no price that has been paid for our sin. And if there is no resurrection, then we are still lost in our sin. They are all necessary parts, but God has commanded us to only celebrate one area of Christ's ministry, his death via the Lord's table. 
My question to you this morning is, what part of the life of Christ do you identify with? Our spiritual birth is not unlike his humble birth. Now, how many people were with you when you were made alive in Christ? And if you're like me, not many. I believe I was saved in my bedroom during one of the many nights of fevered prayer. No one was with me, but maybe your spiritual birth was more public. No matter the amount of witnesses at the actual moment of new life in Christ, a birth is merely a starting point. Can you imagine that for years after the event, all your family could talk about when you were with them was your birth? What if every gift you received for your birthday was either diapers or burp cloths? A spiritual birth is a starting point that should progress quickly into a vibrant life of living for Christ. <clears throat> Yet many Christians are content with merely identifying with the starting point of life. They are often heard saying, oh, I'm a Christian which in all actuality means there has been a point of regeneration, but not too much more. The Bible encourages us to mature. 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What evidence exists that proves that there really is a life there? Did Christ have this evidence in his life? You know, we also look forward to resurrection and glorification. We often speculate on what our new life will be once this life is, is over. There are some very valid comforts that come with pondering what glory will be like. To be with Christ is by far the greatest desire for the Christian. To want to be in his presence having been made perfect. To have the veil of sin and flesh removed and to see him face to face. To worship him without the hint of sin. That is what the heart of all God's children on their pilgrimage homeward longs for, and at our best times we deeply ache for. Yet as we have studied, who witnesses this transformation? In what way does this encourage us to be like Christ while here on earth? I do not believe in the saying, so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. But I understand why such a phrase was coined. We should be wearied from our travels here. We should be looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This world is not my home, nor is it the home of any true child of God. Identifying with Christ's resurrection grants us hope, but we should keep traveling towards that city, making daily progress, progress that is visible to the unregenerate around us, as well as to those who are Christians as well. We should strive to be heavenly-minded and earthly good as well. Do we identify with his sufferings and his sacrifices as much as we identify with his birth and resurrection? Do we relocate the suffering part of Jesus' life to something that is uniquely his and a part of a greater sacrifice of securing salvation for his people? Is that just his? How much of Jesus' life was sacrifice? According to Scripture, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Is that sacrificial? I mean, the angels are perfect and sinless. God is perfect and sinless. How far could it be from where he was before with God and then to be made just a little bit lower than the angels? 
Well, brethren, the gulf between God and the angels that he made and sustains is enormous. To be made a little lower than them just adds to the condescension. He wasn't simply made lower than the angels. He became man. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 and following, Jesus says to God the Father, A body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will. And Isaiah 7, verse 14 reads, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, we may not see the extent of the sacrifice in becoming one of us, but let me expand this for just a moment. As an infant and child, he limited himself in knowledge, ability, self-reliance, mobility, communication, and on and on it goes. How frustrating. How sacrificial for the word of God incarnate to not speak. Jesus, God the Son, who spoke the world into being, who invented language to be only able to express himself via the cries of a newborn. For the one who spoke the curse over his creation to live under the effects of sin and the built-in consequences this world affords and yet remaining sinless. Do you think there is sacrifice here? Jesus was mankind at its absolute best. And yet as such, there was still a tremendously great condescension made by him. We still have no idea how far the descent was from God to mankind, but we can say with veracity that it was an extensive shift in nature. Just coming to earth as a man was a great sacrifice of our Lord. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only did he condescend in his station, his mission was all about sorrow. He was rejected by Israel as the Messiah. He often argued with the spiritual leaders of the day. He was frustrated with his own disciples' lack of understanding and belief in him. His own family rejected him. Ultimately, his heavenly father forsook him. This is why he wore the title, Man of Sorrows. Isaiah 53, you probably know well, but listen as I merely read this list of words from the passage. No form, no majesty, no beauty, despised, rejected, acquainted with grief, not esteemed, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, oppressed, cut off. Brethren, this does not merely apply to the one event of the cross. No, this was his life. <clears throat> Can you really identify with this list as you compare your life to his? 
I would venture that words and phrases that we would be using as blessed, secure, provided for, supported, protected, contented, and so on. I pray it helps us to appreciate the life of Christ the more we look at our own. You know, the Old Testament is full of references to sacrifice. Yes, the sacrifices of bulls and goats were shadows of Christ's sacrifice, but they were also indicative of something that pleases God. Does God or did God sacrifice? If so, then it is an important part of God's character. And if we are longing to be like God, to be like Christ, then sacrifice must be part of who we are as his children. Did God the Spirit and the Father sacrifice as well? I dare say so. The Godhead was perpetually together from all eternity until Jesus' condescension. And from them on, they were separated at some level, especially when God had to look away from his uniquely begotten Son. Do you think that God knows what sacrifice is? And I know we struggle with sacrifice <clears throat> and subsequently suffering. It's because of our wicked pride. We falsely consider ourselves better than we are, and we struggle with service and sacrifice. Jesus was infinitely better than even the best man we could offer, and yet he condescended to our level. There's a few texts here for us to consider. John 13, 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to, him, to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 5 say, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Brethren, when we identify with Jesus' life of sacrifice, many people observe us. <clears throat> We are the most effective witness when we emulate Christ in his sufferings. Jesus' birth was a relatively private affair. His growing up years were mostly uneventful and normal. When he began his ministry, that's when the focus of the people around him turned to him. Not only his disciples, but also thousands of people witnessed all the grief that he bore. Outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Jesus publicly wept. He was observed as doing so, and it was stated by those in attendance, see how he loved him. His final act of sacrifice begins with the very public trials. 
It proceeds with agonizing torture, and it ends with being nailed to a wooden stake, naked and witnessed by many who deride and ridicule the God, the Son of God. <clears throat> this is our model. It is our example. We should not be seeking to establish our view of heaven on earth. No, instead we should be living a life of sacrifice, proving that earth is not our home, that our citizenship resides with our master in heaven. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Did you bring your cross with you today? Is it at home in a dusty corner? Do you even have a cross? In other words, are you trying to save your own life? Paul said in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Lastly, why did Jesus willingly suffer and die as part of the plan of God? We don't have to guess. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There is a joy yet to come, brethren. It was so great a joy that Christ was able to do all that he did to procure redemption for his people through a horrific public death. Not many of us will probably be called upon to sacrifice in the same manner, but some Christians have. There is an ending to all suffering and sacrifice. The cross was not the only sacrificial event of Christ's life, but it was the culmination of a lifetime of sacrifice. As it passed, it marked the end of Christ's role as the suffering servant, and with his resurrection began his role as conquering king. Such is true for the children of God. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." As we send, sense our end approaching, will we be able to say the same? I pray that we will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the plan of redemption. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing and able 
to come and procure it. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us as your people and help us to be like you in every regard. Help us to look at the suffering servant and to look at our own lives and see if there's been a lack of sacrifice, if we have not picked up our cross in obedience to you, have we have prized our lives over what we are supposed to do. Grant us repentance, if so, Lord. And come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Do we have a hymn? It will take me a few minutes to get that ready. Okay. Do you want to do a hymn instead? or? Let's sing number 405 in the brown hymnal, 405. Heals the sick, 
the lost he came to save. For me his precious blood he shed, for me his life he gave. I need no